Welcome to the School for Good Living podcast. I'm your host, Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this podcast to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. Most of my guests are authors, and in each episode, I explore their life journeys and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read so that you can use these same strategies and tactics too. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the School for Good Living podcast. In this episode, I talk with David G. David G. has taught more than 200,000 people how to meditate. He ran the Chopra University for a decade. And I first met him when I attended Hay House's I Can Do It Summit in Seattle a couple years ago, spent a half day in workshop. He led, loved what I heard, his perspectives on mindfulness and meditation. He really does demystify so many of these things that seem so esoteric. He's written three books, Secrets of Meditation, a guy who's written a book about the secrets of meditation, no surprise, he demystifies it. It's a Nautilus award-winning book I highly recommend. He's also written a book called De-Stressifying, where he takes out a lot of the mystical or religious associations of mindfulness and makes it very, very practical in settings like schools or universities or workplaces uh, and law enforcement and military as well. Uh, Great book. And then his most recent book is one called Sacred Powers. And I really love what he says in Sacred Powers. And I think you'll enjoy this episode hearing the journey of transformation that he experienced as he was working on Wall Street, doing mergers and acquisitions, wearing a suit and tie every day. And uh, one day that all changed. He'll tell you about that. And uh, I think you'll also enjoy hearing a bit about how he writes. It's kind of a unique process. And then some of the answers he provides in the lightning round, I think are really cool too, about how he travels internationally, rules he follows, and the one piece of advice he would give every American. I've never heard that before. Very interesting way of explaining what America is and what he wished every American knew. So with that, I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope that it encourages you to practice uh, even deeper mindfulness if that's your thing. If you don't, I think you'll still enjoy hearing from a very dedicated, through and through thorough person. If you think about it, when you talk to anyone who's passionate about anything and it's so ingrained in who they are, uh, there's something to be learned and usually it's enjoyable. David G even meditates with his dog Peaches, the Buddha princess. So enjoy. Well, Really good to see you again. Thank you for making time today. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. So what's life about? What's life about? Uh, you know, I change my mind on that uh, <laughs> several times a day. Uh, sometimes I think it's it goes back to that uh, Sufi poet Hafiz, when all of your um uh, desires are distilled. You will cast but two votes to love more and to be happy. So sometimes I think it's that. Uh, sometimes I think we're here to just raise a vibration. Uh, each of us has this powerful um, ripple and we're trying to uh, coordinate or align or uh, do something with 7.6 billion vibrations of humans and animals and, and, and all the sentient life um, on the planet. 
Uh, but I think, you know, we, uh, I think we find that out perhaps when we take our last breath, you know, it's like that Steve Jobs moment. Wow. 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 Um, maybe that was him going like, Oh, <laughs> that's what it's all about. Um, but so I think since, since we don't have that and since it's a faith and a trust, I think we have to, um, just dig deep and, um, and, and show up and, uh, and, and lead with our heart. That's, that's probably it. And then maybe one day we'll find out. Beautiful. It's a mystery to be lived. I think so. Right? I hope so. Awesome. Awesome. Not Okay, cool. So when somebody asks you who, like when you meet somebody and you tell them a little bit about who you are and what you do, what do you say? Uh, you know, I'm pretty low key about that. So when people say, are you that guy? I'm going, I, I often say probably not. Um, <laughs> you know, I haven't really done um, a, a heck of a lot to, uh, to announce that here I am. You know, I, I, I consider myself a channel, uh, a conduit, and not in a woo-woo kooky kind of way. Uh, but I figure there's, um, you know, in my small, tiny, cute little eight-pound brain, uh, that's not, you know, that's just a component of me. And uh, I, I refer to myself sometimes as a, a translator of timeless wisdom uh, or a conduit or a, uh, a channel of the divine. And I'm just trying to figure out, you know, I think, I think we all are channels of the divine. And, you know, a lot of people refer to me sometimes as a, as a guru. And uh, I'm really comfortable saying I, I'm, not, I'm not a guru. I'm just the guy. I'm just the guy. And uh, I've touched, uh, I've had a lot of really cool experiences. And I've explored uh, and studied with a lot of really um, wise people and, and unwise people. And uh, hopefully I'm uh, just a, uh, and I believe we all are this, just, you know, the universe is breathing into me and I'm breathing out and I've got my style, Brian, you have your style and everybody has their style. So I'm just trying to help people um, get closer to whatever that, uh, whatever that divine whisper is that's coming inside of us so whether that's a, a whisper of purpose a whisper of love but you know, certainly a whisper of some kind of energy and so and, and yeah we're we're clothed in all this you know in all these 21st century you know whatever strangleholds uh, as well as this flesh casing yeah. so we're all just doing our best you know as ram das says we're all just walking each other home so i'm just uh, somebody helping somebody get home love that I love that. It's beautiful. You know, you've I've been so impressed to see how you've devoted your life to teaching meditation and training other people to teach it. And I know that from the first time I met you, <clears throat> I didn't I, I didn't know who you were until I attended the Hay House. I can do it summit in Seattle a couple of years back. I spent um, I think it was a morning session with you a few hours where we were able to go a little bit deeper than just somebody giving a keynote. And you shared a story that you shared again in Sacred Powers um, about an experience you had after 9-11. And what I loved in Sacred Powers is you went deeper into that story than I had heard it before. And uh, I think of that perhaps as maybe your origin story. If you if you were a superhero, this, I think, is maybe your origin story. And I wonder if you'd be willing to share that story again for, for all our friends listening. Sure. Um, 
you know, this it it was certainly a powerful defining moment for me. And uh, you know, in Sacred Powers, I referred to that as as a butterfly moment. And I think we all have those, whether we're you know, sometimes we're just not paying attention. But this was one of those uh, moments where I think um, God, the universe, the divine, whatever was screaming to me or like whacking me in the head with a two by four saying, pay attention. So, uh, you know, I worked, um, I worked in the World Trade Center for a while and um, I was fortunate enough to leave that. Um, I worked on the 82nd floor of Tower Two and I was fortunate to leave that um, building um, about six months before 9-11 back in the day. And uh, and I also got the opportunity in, in the place where I then was working to be standing on the roof uh, on 9-11 and from 20 blocks further uptown and actually watch uh, the towers um, collapse. And with with my staff and, and with a bunch of people who I was who I was working with. And that was probably the um, I would say, you know, going back to like that is really the very, very first seed, because when I watched um, the first tower collapse, um, I couldn't really even understand it. Uh, I had been in total control of, of every thought that I had had leading up to that moment. And just witnessing that, my brain couldn't wrap itself around it. I had watched, you know, I'd looked at the, at the World Trade Center, you know, at the Twin Towers for, for years. Uh, growing up, they were, they were a part of everything. And it was really in that moment, watching, the, <clears throat> watching that first tower collapse with people in it who, who we all knew, as we were watching this, it was such an extreme, like, how could this thing ever possibly even happen? I don't understand it. And for the first, very first time in my life, I was actually watching something that I couldn't understand. It was, it was out of my ken, out of my zone, out of, out of any aspect of understanding. And, and that, had a, that had a powerful impact on, from that moment. Um, how I thought about life and the world, and you know, I was in a in a very very uh, in, a, in a state of very very deep sorrow, and it was a time of of also a lot of deep reflection because suddenly everything I thought was here's how the world is suddenly was not. That was you know suddenly you know woke up from from a bunch of years of amnesia, <clears throat> and so in the wake of nine eleven, as I was you know in the days and weeks. As I continued to walk through uh, Manhattan on this one day, um, and it was just a couple of weeks afterwards, maybe ten days afterwards, and I was walking in Soho, southern, um, south of Houston Street in southern Manhattan, and I walked past a row of cardboard boxes that people were living in, and as I walked past this particular um, box, and you have to realize I was, I was in the world of M and I wasn't paying attention to people living in cardboard boxes at the time. Not that, not that. Not that everyone in M&A doesn't pay attention to people in cardboard boxes, but my attention was elsewhere. Yeah. And, and just for our listeners who might not know the term M&A, mergers and acquisitions. So this is a corporate life. You're maybe wearing a tie every day. You're in the finance I'm and money a, world. I'm wearing a three-piece suit, wingtips, a tie every single day. Um, Your hair probably my, wasn't quite as long. And my hair's a lot, and my hair's a lot shorter. <laughs> okay. And my hair is actually a color. It actually was red. Um now it's, you know, it's, uh, there is no pigment in my hair. You know, people say like, oh, do you have gray hair? And I go, actually, my hair is red hair with zero pigment in it. It's, it's lost all its pigment. It's white. Um, 
so yeah, I was I was working in finance. I was working in I was a mergers and acquisitions advisor, helping people, uh, helping companies um, figure out how they should merge together. Um, and for me, that was uh, I was coming to find that it was um, a soulless pursuit um, for me because I I wasn't really um, I wasn't really really on the inside. I was just an advisor, and I wasn't. I wasn't feeling fulfilled and it was really, I, I was, you know, it was good money, but I was just working for the money. And, and how old are you at this time? Yeah. Thirties. Yeah. Um, and so you figure, you know, this is, you figure what you do when you're in your thirties, you're going to do for the rest of your life. And so this is, you know, pretty much what I was going to do. And I figured, you know, one day I'll, I'll die. <laughs> you know, um, I had started meditating many, many one years day. before then. Um, but dabbled in it on and off. It was an experimental um, Asian uh, studies course by, in college. Um, and there were 12 of us. We sat in a circle um, with our Zen master who stood in the corner. Uh, we were instructed to raise our hands when we had a thought during the meditation. In his hands, he carried that 18-inch bamboo stick known as a Kesaku. And when we raised our hands, he would come over and thwack us on the back. So I was like really? This is meditation? Uh, so I only lasted in that school meditation <laughs> a couple of weeks. I found myself lying to my Zen master, like, no, I'm not having thoughts. It's okay. Um, and then over the years, <laughs> I dabbled in meditation because it always brought me calm. It always brought me a little bit of balance. And as I got more deeply ingrained into the corporate world and business and finance, uh, I suddenly realized that I had traded in my early morning uh, meditation ritual for an early morning train ride to the World Trade Center, and I had traded in my evening ritual for a nice big glass of scotch, and like that, um, balance was gone from my life. That was like the one thing that I was aware of, like, oh, I remember that thing I used to do, that meditation. And some of those meditation techniques I tried for, for, for years. You know, some I dabbled in for weeks, but you know, I kept going on and off and falling in and out of that. And that was really the only um, correlation that I could that I could come up with. You know, I no longer meditate, and I no longer have balance. And so I was feeling unfulfilled. I was feeling relatively empty in my, in my job. And after after nine eleven, I was I couldn't understand anything. I couldn't figure anything out. Uh, I couldn't really you know is this what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Why am I here? All those questions you know that we started talking about. You know, what's the meaning of life? Yep, you know, is life and uh, as I'm walking past this row of cardboard boxes that people are living in, this one, you know, I walk past this one box and a hand reaches out, grabs my pant leg and just holds on. And normally I would have just like shaken it off or kept moving or, you know, it's New York. And uh, I just stopped and really leaned in. And this guy peered up at me and he was, you know, pretty much, you know, covered in soot, dirty, you know, craggy, um, clearly had not bathed in a while, um, but he had these gorgeous, magnificent, um, really like cerulean blue, crystalline eyes. And we like gazed into each other's eyes and we, and we locked eyes. And, you know, he, you know, one of the first things he did was grab my pen. Like, and in that moment, uh, everything stopped, you know, and I've lived in New York, but I had lived in New York pretty much my whole life up until that moment and suddenly no sounds of traffic no other people on the street no planes overhead there's nothing happening there's total silence it's deeper than silence 
And I, I was aware that the two of us were like the only individuals in existence in that moment. You know, there, 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 I had no peripheral vision. There was nothing. It was, it was that moment. It was a holy moment. And, uh, you know, he first said to me, you know, so what's going to be on your tombstone? And I was like, I mean, I gasped at it. I, I, I couldn't even, you know, suddenly it's like, poof, it hit me so deeply because here I was, you know, walking around purpose, purposeless, not thinking about what is my purpose or what is my meaning. And, and the, this voice asks me probably the most profound question, um, right up until you asked me <laughs> a few minutes ago. Um, and I froze. I had there. There was nothing coming out of me. It was. It was. Um, and I figured, oh, this is just a guy who wants some money. So I reached into my pocket, um, and he actually like pinned my hand against my pocket, and he said, "It's not about the money." And I was like, uh, you know, I couldn't. Re- I couldn't. You know, a, a person in a, in a cardboard box, and you're reaching to get give the money, and they're not. That's not what it's about. And uh, he said, "The answer's in the stars." And, um, you know, then he encouraged me to, you know, this, this felt like it was a hundred years, probably just a few minutes, but it was, there was no time. There was no space. There was, it was his eyes and this, this, these, these questions and these statements coming into me. And he encouraged me to, to, you know, go, um, go find my, my sacred powers. And I was like, you know, and, and at a certain point, you know, I, then I, then suddenly everything suddenly came back, you know, and the traffic was there and the people were there and he was there and the box was there. And I pulled out the, the bills almost on autopilot, dropped them. Um, and then like picked them up to hand them to him. And he was gone. He had, he had slunk back into that little box and you know, it didn't follow the pa- the pattern of someone who's asking for a handout. It didn't follow nothing was was normal about this. So I like peeked the bills into the into the curtain. It was a blanket or a towel that was that was like the door. Um, and then I and then I started to keep walking. And then suddenly I had I had no strength. I had no strength in my legs. I was dripping sweat. I was hyperventilating. I sat down maybe twenty feet away, twenty five feet away on the, on the stairs of an apartment building, and just replayed that conversation that probably had been about, I don't know, three minutes with a lot of long pregnant pauses between each word and each phrase. And, and I said nothing during that time. This was just like a, 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 a monologue. And of course, you know, I, I, you know, I mentioned sacred powers. I could have chalked it up to just another day in kooky New York city. Big Apple. Um, but it, it was still rippling through me um, so deeply, and it was just in the in the in the days and weeks after that that my hair. Um, I don't know if you ever saw that that, that old TV show, The Munsters, yep. Yvonne DiCarlo. You know, she had like this like, white race. She had black hair with a white racing stripe down. Wow. That's what started. How long did it take for that to suddenly begin? like started becoming white, and it was red, like like ginger. Wow. Red. And Papa, I was like a freckle faced strawberry. They called me growing up. You know. And suddenly, poof, and so, I mean, there were physical, there were physiological, biological things happening to me um, as, as well. And, you know, I mean, how, how long did it take for your hair to, to start changing after that? Oh, it was that week. It was, so it was basically immediate. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, it was. Uh, wow. Yeah, it was crazy. 
it was crazy. And I, and, but that was just sort of like an, an outward sign. I was changing so deeply inside. And so there were like powerful shifts going on. Um, you know, uh, you know, often, you know, people often ask me, um, why are so many women involved in the world of spirituality and not so many men? And, you know, it's because my, one of my assessments is because, you know, women's physiology changes. They're, they're very aware that there are shifts going on inside of them, whether that's, you know, premenopause or perimenopause or menopause or post, you know, there's, there's shifts that are, that are physical and emotional going on and they're happening in, in men at all, but we, it's been schooled out of us, you know, to, you know, don't pay attention, just get back to work, you know, go, go strive and achieve, you know, um, you know, I, I think there's that, that, that vibe. But this was one of those moments where I was actually feeling physical shifts um, to my physiology, uh, as well as deep questionings. And, you know, as the great sage Popeye, the sailor man said, um, that's all I can stands. I can't stands no more. And so suddenly, um, or you could say Roberta Duran, no mas. And so that was that moment where I was like, I'm not going to live my life one more day like this. And I'm going to explore like what the heck this guy was talking about. And was this God talking to me? I'm not particularly, haven't been particularly religious. Uh, was this a divine, you know, aha moment, certainly a defining moment. And, uh, and, I, and I just went off on my little eat, pray, love journey without the eating and the love, you know, <laughs> just, <laughs> you know, and, and what I think one of the things I think is so amazing about this story is that it, your transformation coincided with a physical destruction, like the buildings came down and the city was changed. And then you were, you know, you were affected by that. And, you know, I think one of the things that I, I often say uh, in my coaching is that is my experience, life works until it doesn't. Right. So in this case, it was like many people's lives kind of stopped working. And for you, it was a physical, you know, these buildings came down and many people, it's something else. It's not as physical, but it's maybe not as observable. You know, it's maybe um, something internally, somebody leaves, you know, a, a divorce unexpectedly, or, or maybe somebody has a diagnosis, as, as you know, these moments of uh, these crucibles that we're faced with. But um, one, one of the things I'm so impressed by with your story is how it it inspires me to know that it is possible for us to transform you know my hope is that it won't take others something so drastic or so painful to do it well that's why you know i i, I often <laughs> i often say to people and if i'm speaking to a group uh you don't have to quit your job you don't have to blow up your life you don't have to head off to india in search of the guru I, i've done that for you I've done all that heavy, heavy lifting. Um, but I, you know, you know, you asked me earlier, you know, how do I, how do I define myself? And one of the ways that I explain what I do is I, I teach people to introduce pattern interrupts into their life. And I believe that, you know, science is proving that if we work on a project where if we're stuck to our screen um, for more than 45 minutes, uh, we would be much better served if we took a break at the 45 minute Mark, even just to walk around the room or go to the bathroom yeah. or, or jump around a little bit, just breathe air and then, and then come back. And I believe that we can change if we're having a challenging conversation with someone, we can like pull back and do that. I mean, science has, has now proved, neuro, neurological science has now proved that um, if you are stuck 
on a problem and you're trying to get the solution, what's happening is like the, the space between the, the dendrites and axioms, uh, the synapse, um, you know, they're not, they're not really connect. They're not connecting. The space is, is almost like forcing them apart. And if we take some type of break, whatever that is, uh, a deep breath in, um, 10 seconds, uh, five minutes, whatever that is, change the subject in some way. When they pull apart and come back together, there's a higher likelihood that they're going to come back together more, um, more connected, more aligned. And, you know, we can do that if we're, if we're watching a movie and we're watching the movie and then suddenly there's that guy on the screen and it's like, oh, what's that actor's name? And it's like, oh, he's that guy who was in that thing. Oh, and yeah. we're getting further away from it. You know, and suddenly it's like he was with that other actor and, uh, and what's his name? And suddenly you get like so lost and then someone says, hey, you want some popcorn? And you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I love popcorn. Oh, oh, yeah, Harvey Keitel. You know, and so, yeah. so like suddenly just that, that pulling away allows us to be better problem solvers. It allows us to, allows the brain to function at a, at a higher level. And so for me and for all of us. Yeah. And, and what I love about that, and I love that this is even, often the mystical can seem like inaccessible, you know? And, and what I hear and what you're sharing is something so simple. It was, it's, it's really the principle there of non-doing. Right. Like the moment you stop trying, in some cases, at least, and then it's like the answer arrives or the solution is is evident. You know, it's really beautiful. Right. And every and everyone, you know, everyone on this planet has has said, ah, my computer's jammed up. Let me reboot. Like we, we so nonchalantly, oh, my phone's my phone's stuck. Let me turn it off and, and let me turn it on. And we don't do that. You know, no. and we don't have sometimes we do that, but we don't have that as like. Oh, time for reboot. Yeah. Oh, time for reboot. Oh, oh, we've, you know, this conversation has gotten really nasty. Time for a reboot. Oh, but when we look at this concept of pattern interrupts, you know, I believe um, a diagnosis, uh, your partner just says it's not working anymore. Um, you're thinking you're doing really well at work and suddenly, you know, the feedback is, well, actually, maybe maybe you're doing great, but everyone hates you. You know, suddenly it's it's that little piece of information that you suddenly get that, of course, can be a pattern interrupt. Uh, nature does it through the seasons. You know, they have these 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 breaks there. You know, it's not like summer, winter. Uh, there's actually like transition periods. There's like, no, 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 there's going to be a thaw now uh, or there's going to be, you know, suddenly there's going to, you know, everything's going to freeze up, you know, the crocuses popping through the frost. So I think that this concept of the pattern interrupt, no matter where we introduce it, yeah. happens on TV when they give you the commercials. We need it. We thrive from it because at the deepest level in terms of who we are, we have, you know, say 70,000 thoughts a day. According to the UCLA Neurolab, we have 70,000 thoughts a day. So that's like a thought every 1.2 seconds. And so the next thought comes in, then the next thought, then the next thought, then the next thought. And, you know, what allows the next thought to be different than the one that just came into it? It's not like chromosomes where they just like replicate and replicate. And because there's a space between each thought and maybe that's a millisecond, maybe it's a sliver. But if we can become aware of that space, if we can connect to that space, and I believe that space is who we truly are. We're not our thoughts. We're not our physical body. We have a physical body and we have thoughts, but we're not our physical body and we're not um, thoughts. We are the space between those thoughts. So if we can actually connect 
to that space, which is who we truly are at a, at the deepest level. I don't know. You want to call it soul or spirit or essence, you know, whatever that is. But we are that space. You know, just like if we took a deep breath, in, if we just breathe normally right now, and we'd say, oh, I'm breathing in, and oh, I'm breathing out. We would suddenly become aware like, oh, but there's actually like a flicker of stillness between the inhale and the exhale and the exhale and the inhale. That space between there. Life is activity, and we're sort of like that stillness between all of that. And so anytime we can connect to that, that allows the next moment to possibly no. be a little more um, – have greater potential. I think that's where where creativity all comes from. It's not by having the same dialogue and the same conditioned flow of all of our actions uh, or words or, or thoughts. It's suddenly that there's a space that we acknowledge or recognize and that allows, you know, they do it. You see it in baseball when the, you know, the manager goes out to the mound, you know, yeah. and it's a pattern interrupt. You know, they're like, you're standing up there, they're talking, who knows, you know, we've seen all those movies where they're really just saying nothing, you know, it's like, how you doing? Hey, you know, what'd you do last night? Um, a pattern interrupt. It's a break in the action. It's, it's, it happens in football when the coach tries to, you know, freeze the kicker. You know, suddenly it's like, and there was a recent study, it's about three months old, um, with uh, European football, soccer, where the penalty kickers, you know, when you pull down, when you're taking a shot, you get a free shot. You know, uh, a free kick at the goal for those of you who don't know soccer. Come out of your cave. but um, And so they've proved that, or at least they've, they've revealed or discovered, that those um, penalty kickers, the guy taking the penalty shot, uh, wow. if he waits at least 10 seconds, he has a higher scoring percentage. No matter who he is, no matter what's going on. If they just put it down and he's like really revved up and he's got all the adrenaline pumping and he just gets there and, and kicks it. Uh, lower scoring percentage than if he just takes that no. extra few seconds. And so that we know the pattern of the, we know the power of the pattern interrupt. And we don't, we don't access it because we're like caught up in the, in the, in the stream of like every right. single moment we have to do, you know, especially if you're a high achiever, especially if you're crushing it out there, you didn't learn to crush it by taking a break. You know, that would be the loser's path, you know, that would be the slacker's path. You know, we've we high achievers and certainly people, you know, uh, would attribute their success between being really, really focused and keep leaning in hard and hard and hard and not taking that break. But those people probably have their own mechanisms yeah. for introducing pattern interrupts so they can be more creative, so they can be more solution oriented and so that they can um, really choose a different path. Um I like to, you know, I'm a big TV watcher. I know it's, it's lame, but I watch lots and lots of TV. Um, and uh, I, I, every quarter, I change up my favorites that are on my, on my uh, cable. You know, um, I'm old school on cable. I haven't cut the cord yet. But, um, but, you know, I want to suddenly introduce a whole new scenario of conversation and of things that I'm watching and things that I'm listening to. Um, that's why I'll suddenly pick up a book that I would never read and I'll, and I'll just pick it up and, and, and read it just to go like, well, that was horrible, but it suddenly brought me into this thing. And now I'm in that space to come back, to come back to whatever I thought was relevant at that time. Yeah. Awesome. No, I love, I love that you help, you know, people interrupt themselves and elevate the quality of their life in, in doing so and not waiting for life to interrupt them. And in sacred powers, you know, this 
is something I see. So here's this pattern of so many tools and awarenesses that you, I think you help a reader gain or maybe see or experience for themselves. And, um, and I'm interested to know, you know, first of all, with Secrets of Meditation, which I loved, um, how it's kind of a tour of the world's, you know, meditation styles and a, a little a smorgasbord almost. And, and I loved trying out each one and figuring out what worked for me and what I enjoyed. And then with this new one, it's, I, with Sacred Powers, I felt like it was an opportunity to go deeper into myself. Right. And I'm wondering from your perspective, I'm, so now as just having finished reading the book, I'm, I really want to know what what led you to write it? Like, why did you why did the world need this book and who did you write it for? Um, uh, well, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time um, to read it. Um, and hopefully you found value in it. Um, I get. I get hundreds of emails um, every week, and even and even at that uh, that conference in Seattle, and pretty much, you know, I'm on the road, 200 plus days a year, teaching meditation and working with cops and the military and Dutch special forces and just regular people uh, as well, people in the corporate world. Um, I get hundreds of emails of people asking me if they should leave their spouse, if they should quit their job. Uh, should they do the chemo or should they try a holistic response? And I'm at wherever I am, you know, I just did a book signing this past weekend and, you know, some people are like, Oh, thanks. I love the book. Thanks for spending time with us. And then there's always someone who says, you know, I'm really at a crossroads right now. I'm stuck and I don't know what I should do. And I don't want to give the pablum like, you know, Oh, just trust the universe and you'll make the best decision. Um, and I certainly don't want to say, yeah, you should dump that loser <laughs> or, or quit that job where they don't respect you. Because, you know, who am I to tell someone else? You know, there's lots of jobs where people aren't respected and they thrive and they and they end up becoming the CEO of that company. So who am I to say, yes, now's the time to, to step away. Um, and I figured if I could share um, some of these deepest teachings that don't tell you stay or go, they don't tell you um, – tough it out uh, or, or throw guilt in a certain way. The, the teachings say there are processes that exist uh, and have existed for thousands of years for us to connect to our inner wisdom. I believe that the answer to every question rests inside. I believe the answer to every question we could ever ask ourselves or be asked by another rests deeply inside of us. But we have to be able to access it. Uh, and again, when we're trying to get there, we're probably not going to come up with the most concrete response. And so my, what led me to, you know, I think it was, I just got an email and someone like, you know, it's like a 10 page email. You know, this is happening. That's happening. Should I, should I um, leave my cheating husband? Should I quit my high powered job where I'm making ridiculous money and I have great respect uh, but I'm feeling unfulfilled. Uh, and um, should I, and it was some some questions about about their health. And I was like, who am I to, to, to tell you? Yeah. You know, I think even yeah. the greatest life coach in the world, you know, helps coach the answer out, doesn't say do it. You know, <laughs> you know, that classic, you know, 
psychiatrist saying, well, why do you, you know, what do you think we should do? So I wrote Sacred Powers to say like, listen, here's a whole bunch of tools that I have accessed and I didn't make them up and I didn't learn them from one teacher or this mentor or, and I, and I've, and I've studied with a lot of really powerful and amazing uh, teachers, but I don't want to say like, well, here's the teaching from this teacher because, you know, uh, I don't believe there's anything new under the sun. I believe it's just a, you know, even Einstein said, um, energy cannot be created nor destroyed. It can only be changed from one form to the other. I mean, imagine the same exact energy that was on this planet in its creation is the exact same amount of energy that's here right now. Nothing's been lost and nothing's been gained. It's just constantly been transmuted into all these other um, aspects. So I felt like, let me explore some of these teachings. I had some, you know, powerful awakening moments and aha moments. And, you know, in in the book, you know, I I took more about them. And, 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 you know, certainly they could seem a lot more kooky or, you know, woo-woo. But I think... I think we all have. I've just had the opportunity. You know, I've been a, a student of this stuff. So I wanted to find um, essentially um, a series of immutable laws, laws of nature, laws of existence, laws of the universe that, you know, exist in First Nation and Native American cultures that existed in, in, in the Middle East 6,000, 7,000 years ago that you know existed in India, existed in China. And I started to see you know, an, an overlap in a few of these patterns yeah. and in terms of foundations for answering these most, these deepest life questions. And, you know, so there are certainly magnificent books about this stuff. I didn't write the, this is, I didn't write the first book, but I'm a translator. So this was a way for me to translate into what I felt was an accessible format for people, whether you're, you know, um, whether you don't buy any of the cooked out stuff and you're really, you know, an empiricist and you want to, you know, flow your life with greater grace and greater ease or greater success and greater fulfillment, or whether you are, you know, say, yeah, I believe in in energy and energy can be shared between people. And it doesn't mean it's, you know, cooked out or, or something. Cause you know, the, even though we're in the world, that's really why I wrote, wrote secrets of meditation to demystify all this stuff. Because I, I, I think it can be seen as mystical and that's cool and sexy. But the reality is it's, it's, it's real. And, you know, uh, look no further than Einstein. Einstein's talking about, you know, and Einstein referred to this stuff as, you know, sp- spooky energy at a distance. You know, so if Einstein could even have that, um, those kinds of aha moments, um, you know, I figure I'm, I'm in good company. So I tried to, to really, you know, how would... What would be the tools that I would give you if you said, I'm struggling in this aspect of my life, or I'm at a crossroads in my life, or I'm at a fork in the road. What do I pick, A or B, you know, left or right? Uh, so I figured rather than me ever answering that question ever again. Uh, so this is, yeah, I wrote this book for anyone who finds themselves either now or at any point at a crossroads, at a big decision, at, yeah. at a defining moment, and they know this could be a big one. Or if they're just stuck, it will reveal to them that this can be a defining moment if they want it to, to be that. So that's why I filled it with different exercises. And, you know, someone said to me that, you know, they're reading a particular chapter and they'd never explored their life so deeply. 
you know, you know, going deep. And I said, well, that the beauty of it is that, you know, this wasn't necessarily with another person. This was you and your deepest self-reflections really asking those questions. How did I get here? How am I going to get to the next level? Is what brought me to this space in my life going to be the same skill sets and tools and, and mindset that's going to take me to that next level where I want to be? And I believe that we can <laughs> blow up ourselves. You know, um, I like to use the hashtag, hashtag yeah. BSU, blow stuff up. Um, and a lot of people think, it, no, that's Ball State University. Um, but... Um, but it's just like blow stuff up. Nature abhors a vacuum. Aristotle said that, you know, so blow stuff up, create, create some void and, you know, let go of some stuff and let's see what rushes in. And so that's really why I wrote this, to give people um, uh, an inspiration, an opportunity to trust themselves, to access that eternal uh, pool of, of, of answers and energy and wisdom that rests inside without having to fall into some religious realm or, you know, so I mean, it's a basically a very secular book. It's trusting you and whatever you believe you're, you're, whatever you believe you're here for, or whatever your higher power is. Oh, I, and I think that's what works so well about the book. It, it did for me is that it's not asking me to throw away or set aside. I mean, even though you're saying you, you encourage people to blow stuff up, really what it, I see is this opportunity to look within and to, to be honest with myself, and if, if I like what I find or it's, it's working for me, then I then I, great, I stay with it. And if, if, if maybe something's missing or something more is available, that, that is available as well. And I love your attitude to, you know, you, like your approach to this, uh, both this self-discovery and also the process of meditation, because like you were saying earlier in our conversation about how some, some schools are so rigid they're so formal, they're even painful or difficult. And, and I've had the opportunity to teach a few friends. I've, I've been meditating every day about five years. And just in the last, in the last six months or so, I've been hosting a, a meditation circle here in Salt Lake City. And so now I'm getting to experience the joy of meditation through teaching others. And one of the things that I, you've shared is that I love your saying, comfort is queen. Right, that it's not necessarily you've got to be in this exact posture for this long, and your breath count has to be like this or anything. Will you talk a little bit more about just that? I've I've heard you say that now in many different ways. Comfort is queen. Will you just talk about that and your general kind of philosophy of meditation? Sure, um, and congratulations. Um, what, it's so exciting to to lead any group, you know, because uh, 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 there's a uh, uh, there's a group energy. There's a there's a, a collective energy that comes in that when just a few people sit down, close their eyes together, and connect to that stillness and silence. Uh, it's not the same thing as five people napping in the same room. <laughs> there's really something distinctly special about that, and 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 the power of that ripple. Um, you know, I I've explored a lot of uh, various. Um, meditation techniques and i've had some of the some of the wisest uh teachers and some some of the most prolific um uh, authors and teachers and mentors and um pretty much all of them have um well for lack of a better word uh an agenda 
you know, it's, it's, they were schooled in a particular philosophy. They've gotten brilliant in that particular philosophy um, or style or, or more movement. And um, when I first, you know, fell under various of their spells, um, I too was like, this is it. This is it. You know, this, this is, this is the answer. This is how you do it. And as I explored more and more and more, and I was given, you know, such a great opportunity um, to do that. Um, you know, I think I had a, a once in a lifetime opportunity. You know, I ended up apprenticing to Deepak Chopra and to David Simon um, for, for a decade. And that really gave me an opportunity. They, they didn't just say like, here's the box. They said, you know, here's, here's our methodology, but let's expose you to all these other things as well. Um, you know, I don't think their, their vision was, let's expose them. Um, they couldn't be in certain places, so I, you know, they recommended certain things and certain readings. And, and that was really the beauty of the interplay between Deepak Chopra um, and David Simon. Uh, both MDs, both physicians, uh, Deepak much more in the quantum realm, David Simon, a neurologist, real you know, science-based, didn't believe in muscle testing or any of that other, you know, kookier stuff, you know, believed in energy, but was really more, let's look at the, let's look at the science. Let's look, let's look at the evidence. And that allowed me to um, really not get sucked into any one particular methodology. And David Simon encouraged me, you know, we'll, we'll explore this, explore that, explore, you know, there's, there's so many different paths into whatever that answer is, you know, knock yourself out, go do that. And that's really what my teacher training is about. That's why it's called the Masters of Wisdom and Meditation Teacher Training. Because I could teach anyone just meditate. You know, here's a bunch of scripts or here's a video. You know, teach. Uh, but I wanted my teachers to have that breadth of understanding of where's this timeless wisdom come from? What are all the possibilities in the modern realm as well as in, in, in ancient texts and ancient teachings? Um, you know, and the most beautiful thing is when, you know, when we all, you know, assemble for our final week together um, in person, people will say, I don't really remember whether it was Ram Das who said this or the Bhagavad Gita. Was that Pema Chodron or Thich Nhat Hanh? Was that something I read from some ancient Sufi thing? Um, and that's the beauty. It's one message. It's just a thousands of voices that do it. And we know the teacher that we resonate with, you know, they're not better than another teacher. We just happen to be more open to that vibration in a particular, you know, in, in a given moment. And I think more so than, than anything else, you know, this is all a journey for all of us that we just get to, um, let's try all the different things. So my philosophy is woven from a, a thread of this and a thread of that and a thread of this, because I have found, you know, one of the first things that was, that was taught to me by some great teachers was like, whatever you do, don't meditate with your, with your pet. And I was like, what? But my pet, Peaches the Buddha Princess, who's a, an LA rescue, we meditate every single day. It's one of the most beautiful things. It actually keeps me meditating every single day because I want to connect to that deep state, you know, with her. And uh, they go, no, 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 the ancient teachings. So this goes all the way back to, you know, the, the Vedic sciences. They will steal your energy. And I'm like, that's preposterous and absurd. So, you know, and even Ayurveda, the 5,000 year old, you know, healing science um, has you know, some stuff that's just fundamental and uh, a little too rigid. And I believe that 
more people have stopped meditating because of the rigid, uh, strict, and dogma aspects of some of these schools uh, than have begun. And so really what I've always recommended to people is, you know, I'll throw out some guardrails here. You can dry, you can cross all the lines you want in between all those guardrails, go back and forth wherever you want. But the reality is that um, you have to find where you are. You have to find the thing that resonates with you. So if you've had a very, very, you know, strict religious upbringing, you know, you could either go, oh, I want something strict and dogmatic, or you could say, I'm done with that. I'm moving to a whole new aspect of my life. I'm going to let that go and, and, and open my heart to something else. And, and I believe that there's a, that's why I wrote de-stressifying. So we could look at this without all the bells and whistles and just really look at, at the, the stress aspect, the scientific aspect, what's happening to our body, what's happening to our mind, what's happening to our souls. Um, and, and how we could live life, um, you know, on a higher plane. So, you know, I honor whatever every school, but I would say that I there's not one school that I think, oh, that's the one that's more right. But what I've really felt comfortable doing is, you know, that makes sense to me. I think I'll own that. That makes sense to me. I think I'll own that. And I've explored hundreds of various schools and philosophies and wisdom traditions. And so that has allowed me to be, you know, uh, multidimensional within this context. And I think, I think people will thrive in that freedom to choose the thing that, that resonates most deeply with them. Yeah. Uh, that's something that I wish those who are just beginning meditation like really were willing to i wish they came to the to the search with that mentality like not that there's the right way you know or some some dogma that if i learn you know it's going to work for me but otherwise i'm you know maybe meditation just doesn't work for me and this invitation to others to figure out for themselves what they like you know what works right. is I, I love that. And, and something that I remember you said, or at least <laughs> I remember you said this about like, like if you don't enjoy it, if, it, if it's difficult, if it's painful, you're not going to keep doing it. Right. There's nothing in our life that we don't like that we share with others or that we show up and do a lot. Yeah. You know, at a certain point, even if you go like, oh, I hate going to the gym. Nah, there's a, if you go to the gym every single day for a year, you don't hate going to the gym. There's some kind of release of endorphins that you like. You like the way your body's feeling. There, there are some rewards to that thing. But if there's a, you know, and I tell this to my students all the time, you know, if you read a, a book and the author or the teacher or the wisdom tradition doesn't really resonate with you, you're never going to share that. Yeah. You're never gonna. You're never gonna say, "Hey, let me tell you the thing that I don't care about, don't like, and don't believe in." That's not the thing you're gonna go out there and be talking about and sharing about. You're gonna be like, "Oh, I love that. I love that. I can't wait yeah. to share that with somebody else." And that's where, you know. And so, you know, look at your own life. You know, start meditating. You know, say five years ago, really consistently, and then at a certain point, I know this, and we haven't discussed this, but at a certain point, I know something shifted inside of you, and you said, "Oh." Uh, I have to share this with yeah. other people. I, how, how do I, what, what, how yeah. do I do that? Yeah. You know? And that was a thing that like, it was such a deep resonance that you couldn't stop. You couldn't not. It wasn't like you were saying, Hmm, how can I get a bunch of people in a room and, and meditate? You were like, um, how can I collect people that I can share the power, the beauty, the magnificence of this thing that I've discovered? Yeah, absolutely. And, and having seen, you know, just in conversations with friends, 
and people I meet that, you know, when I ask, this is my, my casual conversation, you know, what's life about? Do you meditate? What are you reading? You know, these things. And, and when I find many people who say, well, I tried meditating, but it, again, like it just doesn't work for me or, you know, I quit. And one of the things that you said that I've applied is this idea of, you know, just increasing your practice one minute a week, where I think a lot of people that go, I'm going to do it 30 minutes every day, like from not having done it. And that lasts like three days or maybe two weeks. And then it's like, <laughs> it's totally not realistic. So you're just your practical approach to making it enjoyable, making it, you know, having compassion for yourself, I think is what it really comes down to, even if people don't see it that way. It's beautiful. So I want, let me, Yeah. well, I think, you know, I, sorry, sorry. I, I, I want to just sw um, switch gears a little bit and speaking of pattern interrupts and recognizing we've got just, just about an hour left. Um, and I still, I still want to get to the book writing stuff and I want to get through just a few lightning questions. So let me, let me put those here now. And the idea with these, of course you can answer as long as you want. <laughs> I've written them in a way that I hope they can be answered in a sentence. Okay, you can take, but again, you can take whatever you want. So please complete the following sentence. Life is like a... An ocean. What do you wish you were better at? Loving, loving others. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quip, what would it say? I have two. One would be we transform the world by transforming ourselves. And the other would be Yoga Sta Kuru Karmani, which uh, is uh, from the Bhagavad Gita, which means establish yourself in the present moment and then perform action. Beautiful. Maybe front and back. <laughs> uh, what book other than your own have you gifted most often? Oh, the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, the Bhagavad Gita, ancient text. Uh, Emerson read it every day. Thoreau read it every single day. Gandhi read it every single day. Einstein read it every single day. Uh, it's sort of like one of those magical. You can view it as the. View it as like the, the the perfect story that encompasses all the different aspects of of life, whether that's love, service birth, death, karma, dharma, all that stuff. So I think I've given uh, probably about 500 of those away. Any particular translation? Yes. Eknath Iswaran, E-K-N-A-T-H-E-S-W-A-R-E-N. -E -E uh, it's, it's, it's romantic. It's poetic. It's spot on. Uh, it doesn't feel like you're reading something that's a thousand years old. Beautiful. Beautiful. So you travel, as you said earlier, you travel a lot. What's one travel hack, something you do, or maybe something you bring with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? 
oh, uh, I don't check bags anymore. No matter how long I'm staying, no matter what I'm doing, I, I only do a carry-on. And yes, that limits what, you know, I can't obviously bring uh, a machete or a large bottle of um, uh, hair conditioner. But um, I don't ever miss a flight because of um, a luggage issue on a connection. Your carry-on must have a lot of underwear in it. And I, and I hit <laughs> And I, no, I usually try to find at the five day mark, I pack for five days, no matter what. And even if I'm doing a three day thing, I pack for five days. But because uh, I never know where suddenly someone's going to go, hey, head over there. But that's that's probably been um, there's two things that I've uh, that I've that I've done. One is I've got these um, these really great um, uh, wireless headphones. And so uh, noise canceling. And so the second I enter the airport. I pop those on. And so now I'm like in my own little bubble till the moment I land, wherever that is. So that's one thing that really allows me to, to, to stay in whatever space I want to. And I can meditate, you know, I, I don't, I'm not listening to other stuff. Um, that and, and only using carry-ons. Awesome. What's one thing you wish every American knew? I wish every American knew um, the history of slavery in this country. I think, you know, yes, I know we, we slaughtered the Indians. They were here first. But um, we made like a conscious choice as a country to grow up uh, 150, 200 years ago with this concept that, um, that slavery was like normal, that it, that it was okay. And so I think that that is the that that pains me every day, um, that uh, that actually hurts my heart on a daily basis, and I wish that every American um, just like understood like how did that happen, um, and what did we do, and 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 you know there's probably about ten different histories and lots of different viewpoints and defensive and aggressive and and all on it, but if you cut away all the all the uh, melodrama from the conversation. Uh, it's a piece of our history that, I, that, you know, it was just like one word. We all grew up like, you know, oh, and there was slavery. Yeah. Oh, and then Lincoln freed the slaves. You know, I mean, that's how most people learn about it. So I, I, I wish every American, um, I wish, I, I hope to always keep learning more and more about that because I think that can um, really help us open our hearts to compassion can help us uh, with the people that we that we live with in this country, and we can also not no. see ourselves as so imperious in certain situations. Are there any books or documentaries or museums or teachers that have been particularly impactful for you as you've learned about the history of slavery that you'd recommend to others? Um. Well. The 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 Blacksonian the uh, that that the the new the new um, museum in D.C. is you could you could keep going you could go there every single week, and you know it's it's everything from our modern it's, you know from a from a Prince uh, musical perspective to you know when when you see the shackles um, and the metal you know. Um, Handcuffs and uh, just restraints 
horribly painful restraints that were put on little mm-hmm. kids um, and, you know, that were yanked out of their world. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that's, that's, that's a whole education. It's like, really? Wow. Really? My country did that? And, and you know, it's, it's not like I have this, like, I'm responsible. I, and I know that, you know, lineage is, is responsible for, for, for everything. We're all, we're all parts of history forward and back. Um, but I think, you know, just that, just that level um, of, a, of awareness can just really um, can spark everyone on their own, on their own yeah. journey of yeah. self-reflection of, I don't know, that's... Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't prepared to have that conversation. <laughs> no, but, but I think, I think, I think, wow, what a what a great thing if every yeah. American yeah. just started exploring that. Because I don't think there's like one book like here's here's really what happened. I think we can all yeah. you know delve into that, and um, you know we live in a in a society, um, and and I'm not pointing fingers at it, you know, but we live in a male dominated, paternalistic, militaristic, um, white, yeah. supremacist type of society. And, um, and being white, you know, that's, you know, I, I, I and yeah. being male and being in positions of power and like all that stuff, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a very, very, you know, heavy thing to just to understand that. You know, by the way, there haven't really been maternalistic societies throughout the last 5,000 years that have existed with, a, you know, with female rulers and female you know, people of power. There's been the occasional you know, woman of power in that process. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and, you know, I'm not I, I have other missions that I'm, that I'm trying to, to put out there. But that's the you know, that's the environment. You know, that's how this country was founded. That's the fractal of of this country. And I think just awareness. I think everything comes back to awareness. I don't want to tell anyone what they should think about anything. I would just like everyone to walk around a little more with eyes wide open on particular issues. I think the same thing, you know, with, 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 you know, I don't have wars against things. I have visions for things, you know, so I'm not, I'm not big on like a war against this or a war against that. Um, uh, my feeling is like there's something sparkling and magnificent over there. Let's all go, yeah. you know, towards that. So, but I think you know, dialogue is the key to all that. Uh, yeah. Maybe that's a whole nother interview. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it could be. What's what's one piece of advice your parents gave you that stayed with you? You know, I was f- fairly rebellious, and I think I rejected every single thing that either of my parents ever said to me. But uh, my mother died when I was relatively young and she gave me um, uh, a copy of James Joyce's Ulysses. And I hadn't read Joyce you know, prior to that. And um, so the inscription, you know, I don't have a lot of stuff from my, from my mother, um, you know, a couple of pictures, but no baby book or any, any stuff like that. But the inscription in, in that was, um, keep sailing my Ulysses. That's, so that was like Beautiful. a description. And so, you know, if you're not familiar with, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey, you know, the, the journey of Ulysses, it's, you know, it's this 20 year just journeying into stuff and having awakenings and figuring out how to get back on the ship and journey to someplace else. So um, I, I like to just keep moving forward. And I believe that all of us will, will, will thrive 
if we can just, you know, there are those moments, really important moments, just like Ulysses. You know, he went to one aisle and he got like stuck there for like five years. So uh, there's times we have to like really pull back the bow and take that yeah. pattern interrupt and take the break. But I think, um, yeah, keep sailing. Keep sailing. I love it. What's one thing you've done? You've started, you've either started doing or you've start or you stopped doing as you've gotten older in order to age well. Oh, in order to age well. There's tons of stuff I've stopped and started, but that hasn't necessarily led to, to any uh, healthier uh, aspect. Um, I, I'm a real fan of looking at what we eat. And uh, so I have paid a lot more attention. I'm not plant perfect by any means, but I try to be plant strong. And so even if that's me compromising a value of, you know, of being involved in eating, an animal that's been tortured and killed. Um, I make sure that there's a lot of vegetables. There's a lot of plants uh, in every aspect of what I do. And uh, I encourage people to do stuff, another pattern interrupt, like a meatless Monday, mm-hmm. you know, or uh, try, you know, try, you know, vegan ice cream or, or something. You know, try coconut milk instead of, instead of dairy, uh, something along those lines. I believe, uh, Everyone should watch the mm, movie uh, Forks Over Knives. It's not like a scolding, finger wagging thing where someone's telling, guilting you into not killing animals. Um, it's really scientific how you know how our heart and our blood vessels probably thrive in a in a dairy free um, environment, potentially in, in an animal free. There was this great. There's one great thing I just need to share. It's out of nowhere, but. Um, it, one of the studies in that movie, and it's a documentary, it's on Netflix, and everyone, everyone can watch it. So in uh, Denmark, a massive um, dairy and cow culture. And in 1942, the Nazis came to Denmark. And what's the first thing they did? Confiscated all the livestock, you know, for themselves. You know, and they're like, you know, eat, eat roots. We don't care. We're, we're, we're taking over. And, and so uh, Denmark at that time had this really, really extremely high level of cardiac issues. And in 1942, when you look at the chart, you know, the cardiac issues had been going like this and you look at the chart, 1942, they plummet, they plummet down and they stay that way for three years where suddenly virtually no one's having any cardiac issues. No one's dying from any heart related. Uh, and in 1945, the war ends, they get the cows, (laughs) they get the cows back and boom, uh, they're back as like one of the top, um, cardiac, uh, death issue um, countries. So I just think, it, you know, that's a great opportunity. But I believe that, um, you know, we were all we all grew up without the awareness that there's anything wrong with eating meat, meat products, and meat fat, and maybe things were even killed or or, or treated kinder. But you know, animals really aren't treated very kindly in that whole process. And so you could come to eating just a little more plants on a on a moral issue, on a health issue, on a scientific, you know, issue. And, you know, I, I bounced back and forth between all different, you know, I was a, I was a vegetarian for seven years. I didn't particularly feel any better. Then I became a paleo and I felt great. Yeah, everybody's uh, I different. I a vegan, you know, and then, uh, you know, now I'm, again, it's like, it's like meditation. You know, you have to, what right, what resonates with you at, you know, at a different time. But I think just awareness of, of just uh, integrating more plants into your life can make a powerful shift. I know that wasn't a sentence, it's more like 10 paragraphs. 
<laughs> we'll take it. It's a, it's a really long sentence, and it's a good one. <laughs> it's funny how that theme of pattern interrupts keeps coming back, though, isn't it? Throughout. Cool. Okay. So you survived the lightning round. Congratulations. Although there might be, I might pop one or two up in between. Okay. Um, I want, I want to turn the conversation now to the process of writing itself. Yeah. And specifically, um, you know, now knowing you've written multiple books, um, this could apply. You feel free to answer any of these questions for any or all of your books, or maybe more specifically, the, you know, the most recent one. So, Let's let's start with sacred powers, and and I'll ask um, about this book. Saying how, like, was there a process, or was there a specific process or approach that you followed in order to get this manuscript done or to get this book published? Um, okay, so this is for writers out there. Um, you know, one of my mentors, Deepak Chopra, has I think over eighty-five books. So in terms of being prolific, I'm. I don't even, I haven't even begun to write compared to something like that. And I think everyone needs to not be, um, I think we should be inspired by other people's habits and, you know, their trajectory of, the, of their writing, but we shouldn't be, we should never be intimidated because some people, you know, wrote one book and it's, it's the greatest book ever written and other people write hundreds of books and they're all, you know, 50 shades of gray. So we, you know, uh, I didn't mean to take a, a slap at that. I'm just saying, you know, I, I don't know that that would be considered high-minded intellectual fodder. So, um, so I write every day. And I think if you um, want to write something, uh, you should write every single day. And I, um, I write at least um, 3,000 words a day, which is about 10 pages, uh, sometimes more. But always that uh, you figure 250 to 300 words, space and a half in word, you know, 10 pages is about 2,500 um, to, to 3,000 words a day. And so I write every day. I write no matter what's going on. I write about uh, how I'm feeling about something in politics. I write how I feel about um, what's happening in an emotional conversation inside me, uh, some incident that's happened. Uh, I'll write about you know, some things are fiction, some things are, are non uh, fiction. Um, and when I say like fiction, I'll, I'll say like, well, what if, and I'll create some type of scenario and then I'll just write uh, uh, about that. So I write no matter what. And I think that's the key. If you want to be a writer or if you are a writer, write. Even when you travel, even when you're in different time no. zones, you've got different commitments. No matter Do you what. If I have like, if I have like a nine to, to nine workshop, I get up pretty early, so that's one one of the things. You know, I wake up, you know, between I wake up around four twenty. Just so happens, it's not a joke. Um, you know, I just happen to wake up around four twenty every single morning, and 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 I meditate. I I do a little yoga. Um, if I'm home, I I walk my dog. We take like a, a forty five minute, you know, we go to the beach or we or we take a hike. Um, and when I come back, boom, that's what I do. That's I don't do anything else. Um, today, I've already written about 15 pages and, and you know, our conversations, you know, started at 10 o'clock in the morning. So I've been up for about six, you know, five and a half hours. And so I try to be like highly productive in that period of time in the realm of writing. So what that means is that after I've gone like a month, you know, I've got 3,000 
uh, I've got 3,000 words times 30 days. Some of the stuff I write is worthless. Uh, most of what I write is worthless. Um, but the style, I wrote Sacred Powers was one of those things where I said, well, now I'm not going to do anything else. I'm just going to write. And so for, you know, probably not very healthy, but from five o'clock in the morning till nine, 10 o'clock at night, that's what I did. And yes, I was traveling and yes, there were classes that interrupted that. But my MO was I'm writing all day. I felt compelled. I felt so inspired. And so part of that was let me, what did I write about this in the past? In one of my 10-page little diatribes, let me pull that in and see what that is. So when I originally wrote Sacred Powers, it was about 800 pages. So I, there's really two ways to start. The more organized way to start is to say, here's my table of contents, and now I'm going to put just a little bit of meat on the bones and build it out. And you start with a page, and you build that, and then you create a chapter, and then you expand that and do that. The other way uh, is sort of like, what I did with Sacred Powers, which was write an 800-page book and then sort of sculpt it and and cut away. Um, there were probably, you know, a few books in there, but I, I was just, I was really, really just focused in that. Let me just keep, um, I've said this already, you know, or I, I don't need to go there again, or I could say it more articulately here, or that took 17 words and I could probably say it in five. Because... You know, you, having read Sacred Powers, yeah. you know that you know it's a lot of it's deep, and I want to keep it engaging at the same time. How do you do depth and engaging? Whenever I've gone to my publisher, Hay House, you know, I've said, you know, I'd like to write that hundred-page book. It's almost like a bathroom book. You know, it's sort of like you know the the twenty ways to keep yourself. And they go, <laughs> no, 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 you're the two hundred fifty-page guy. And I go, no, no, I'm not. I'm the hundred page guy. I want to write the the frivolous hundred page book that says that sells a million copies. And they're like, no, nah, you're the you're the two hundred fifty page guy. So I am, um, you know, all my contracts, when it, you know, whatever. They're like, it's between sixty five thousand and seventy five thousand words. So this book was about one hundred and twenty five thousand words that I scaled down to um, seventy thousand. That was tough. You know, just carving it away, carving, carving. But it's, but I, I see it like carving. I, I put it all out there, and then I said, let me move this and take that away. And how does that go? And so that's how I wrote this book, uh, which is why I think it consumed me. Probably, if I had said, I'm going to write these 20 chapters on these 20 things, let me just put a little more meat on on the bones every day, then probably. Um, wouldn't have killed me. When it was done, it was like one of those, there was nothing left in my head. I couldn't speak. I couldn't do anything. Um, I think I binged like 15 hours <laughs> of, of Netflix, you know, consecutively. Uh, people were like, hey, let's go out and celebrate that you're wow. done. I'm like, not really into it. Don't want to. Um, so it probably took me about three yeah. weeks to recover. And I don't, n not that, you know, when I say recover, to to rejuvenate, it took me it took me three weeks to be able to form a sentence after that. Um, and the funny thing was, you know, in the meantime, it's all yeah. you know. Everyone else who heard about it was like so excited to like, hey, let let's talk about the book, let's do it. And I'm like, I have nothing to say. It's it's there, and that's why it was really hard for me to to start the interviews when the book you know came out because I had 
you know, I hadn't really articulated. My first interview was so horrible. It was like for like Dutch TV. And it was like, it was like a, a 20 minute interview. And they said, explain everything about sacred powers. And so I began like explaining everything in, in like eight minutes. And at like halfway into that interview, I was like, probably I should come up with more, some salient things to talk about, as opposed to explain the entire thing that's, that took my soul, um, in the process. So, you know, I just poured my heart into it. I poured, you know, my, I, I wasn't really thinking it wasn't like, let me, and I don't want to say, Oh, I just channeled the whole book. Like of course, a miracle or anything like that. Um, yes, I, I, I absolutely channeled that. I don't think it was the divine speaking to me. It was one of those things like I couldn't stop typing. I couldn't stop writing. It just it, it needed to come out. And so. Uh, right. When you write like that and you do you know 10 or 15 pages a day, how how clear are you who you're writing for, who you're writing to? I mean, do you have this sense of like, is there an avatar kind of individual or is there a specific person maybe that's been part of your front row, you know, or someone else? I mean, like, because I think that's basic advice given to a writer, right? Like know your audience. And I'm wondering as somebody who, who does actually publish books that goes beyond the theory, the platitudes that are given, I'm interested to know how clear are you when you're writing, who you're writing for? Yeah, well, you know, with de-stressifying, I was really clear. I was writing to the person who... Um, uh, shuns the, the, the word mindfulness or meditation. I was writing for the person who thought it was a weird religion and they were going to get sucked into a cult. I was writing for the person who like never had experienced it. So I was like, I was really clear on who that audience was. It was such a, it was such a mainstream um, corporate you know, I have stress, help me deal with it. Don't, don't utter the word. Don't say anything in Sanskrit. Don't talk about the divine, no universe, no woo woo, no yoga, no meditation, no mindfulness, you know, none of that. So I was really clear on who I was writing that book for. And I wrote that because so many people that I was encountering in the banking community and in the corporate world and in law enforcement were saying like, so, you know, um, should I read secrets meditation? And I was like, Hmm, that might seem too cooked out to you. You know, there's too, there's so many different things and that I'm saying, try them all, like try, you know, chakras, you know, or, or, you know, something, you know, your energy centers, you know, or, or try this. So de-stressifying, you know, I wanted to be able to say, oh, you know what? You don't, you don't care about that stuff at all. So here's de-stressifying. With Sacred Powers, I really wrote this book from, let me, I assumed the person who is reading it was going to find themselves at some type of crossroads. So I really, that was the audience. If your life is soaring and you have like no conflicts of anything, um, then I, I, I was not writing it for that. So I took the liberty of assuming that there's something in your life that you're chewing on from the, that, that would be the most easiest to there's something in your life that you're struggling with somewhere in that realm. And if you're like, Nope, I'm soaring and everything is great. And yeah. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, you know, I specifically didn't write it. So it wasn't so much a demographic as a psychographic, um, because as far as I was concerned, it could be, it could be anyone. 
Yeah, and, and it sounds like you were really clear in both cases what the need or desire of your reader was, which I think is part of what makes the book so useful. I mean, it's not, they don't wander, they're not vague. It's like, it is applicable. And and so to hear you describe some of the characteristics or, or the needs, that, that, that all makes perfect yeah, sense. Yeah, so that was that was interesting to me because I was really clear on who, who, I was writing to someone with the assumption that, it was as if someone came to me and said, oh my God, let me just tell you what's going on in my life. Any, any insight? So that for me, that was, that was like the, whoa, so that's it. That's it. So that's, and you know, cause there were times when suddenly I wrote like, well, what if the person isn't struggling with love? And then I felt, well, isn't everybody, doesn't everyone on the planet feel that they're yeah. probably could use more love? Doesn't everyone on the planet could use an, an extra hug? Couldn't can everyone on the planet um, wish they had, wish they could be a little more intimate or a little more authentic with someone without having yeah. to hide? No, that makes that makes sense. So, so I so nothing. So I didn't. So I wasn't held back in 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 any way. Um, and from the feedback that I'm getting, because you know, as you know, having read it. You know, throughout the book, I say, send me an email or send me, you know, tell me what's what's happening. Where are you? What's going on? Let's stay connected here. And so people are are revealing to me what their challenge was or where their blockage was or what their limiting belief was uh, or what had been holding them back. Or And so that's for me, that's really, I don't know, pretty exciting. That's awesome. So let me let me go. Knowing that I want to share this with people who are writing their first book. Um, maybe they're in the middle of it. Maybe they just want to. Uh, I'm really interested to know your experience and advice to people starting out because it's easy to look at somebody and they've got their agent, they've got their publisher, they already know their next project, you know, this kind of thing. And it feels like that's some kind of superhero, some kind of person they can never be. But how, as like as a practical matter, I mean, how did you begin? Did you write a manuscript? Did you start with a book proposal? Did you like have a neighbor who was in the industry? Like what, well, how did you get started and get your first book done? So I, I was working at the Chopra Center and the Chopra Center had never published a book. And then David Simon said, let's create Chopra Center Press. And I was like, cool. And uh, I was writing Secrets of Meditation while I was there. One of the things that I was also doing was I had a weekly show on Hay House uh, radio, internet radio. And um, it was called, uh, live, well, it's called Live from the Sweet Spot. And I was doing that, um, I don't know, that started in like 2010, which I'm still, which I still do every week. So that's like my, my, my longest running gig right now is, is, is that radio show internet radio show so i um so david simon said you know so let's do that you can be the first book that comes out under chopra center press so i wrote that book and uh, wrote the manuscript rather and uh, then i hired a uh an editor uh to beat it up you know to be really really critical uh and, and they this, this was they secrets really, of meditation they were, they were, they were no holds barred. They were extreme secrets of meditation. Yeah. And, um, then David Simon got, um, 
diagnosed with um, glioblastoma multiform, which of course is the cosmic joke, neurologist dedicated to healing, um, is diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor that if you look on Wikipedia, pretty much, you know, it's 14 months from moment of diagnosis. So he said, you know what, can, can you take a step back? Um, how about I write the first book that comes out of Chopra Center Press because I'll be dead in a, you know, within a year. And I was like, yeah, sure. So I stepped back and, you know, it turned out that he wasn't really able to, to go deep on that. You know, he started narrating it to somebody and then he, he had, had other things that were so much more important to him. So, um, but during that period of time, you know, I uh, was coming into Hay House, which is in, you know, in Carlsbad, at least it's West Coast uh, Division. And that's where Louise Hay was. And that's where um, uh, Reed Tracy, CEO of Hay House. And uh, Louise Hay watched me on my radio show through the glass one day, sitting you know, on my on my radio show in the studio. And when I came out, you know, uh, she fell in love with peaches. And I figured I would ask, you know, I would ask the question. I was like, hey, would you be interested in in uh, publishing my book? She goes, what is it? I said, Secrets of Meditation. I wow. said, it's ready to go. And the book was ready to go. It had been edited. Um, I was comfortable with it. The manuscript was really, you know, perfect. And uh, she said, yeah, let's do that. So yeah. it was, you know, it was, uh, and I think one of the questions was, well, you know, how big's your database right. and will the Chopra Center promote it and stuff like that? Because that seems to be like a bar that, that new, you know, it's like, all right, um, if you're going to, you know, regardless of who the publisher is, you know, they're going to say, well, how, how big is your reach? How many people are paying attention to you? What's your reach on social media? How big is your database? Um, how, how many people do you touch, you know, in a, in a public or uh, situation? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a fan of self-publishing, to tell you the truth. Um, and I believe that if you're a writer, you should write every day, even if it's just um, one page, 250 to 300 words. Yeah. And you should create on Facebook um, a private, uh, a page, you know, on Facebook, you can always, um, click on who, who's going to see these, you know, who's going to, who's, who can see it. And so there's a public and it's just, and there's a thing that says me only. So I think to get you in the sense that you're actually putting it on another platform outside of your, your laptop or your, or your word document. Um, I, I say, write a page on you know, write a write a daily blog every single day because I'm a fan of journaling. I'm a fan of writing. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of moving what's in here, out, out of your head onto the onto the written, onto the paper, onto the computer. You know, move it because that's how energy becomes revealed. You know, from concept to to reality. And so uh, you could do that every single day. No one would even know it, and you just keep writing. And at a certain point, after you've written a daily or a weekly. But you've put it up there and only you can see it at a certain point. You could say, you know what? Maybe I'll start being seen. Maybe I'll let my blog. And you can just click it, you know, who can see it from just me to public. People shouldn't fear that suddenly 10 million people are going to see that absurd thing that you've written. (laughs) Because it's really hard to get people to come to your page. It's hard to get people to come to your your website. Um, 
just because it's public doesn't mean anyone's really paying attention. And so people shouldn't feel overwhelmed or scared by that. And you don't have to, you know, but I would say, you know, go a few months and then let one of those blogs, you know, go live that you're proud of or work on, you know, continue to, to work on that. And I think that is something that can get you moving it out of your heart or your throat or your head onto the page or onto a piece of paper and then really onto a, uh, a social platform. So that's, you know, I've been uh, doing that with, you know, I've been writing a blog every single week since 2011 with an article and a video and a guided meditation every single week since 2011. So that's, you know, seven years of, of that content. And I would say, hmm, probably 80% of it is not up to my standard. Yeah. 80% of it, I can go, oh, I could have written that better. Oh, I could have shot that video better. Oh, I could have done a better, um, a better guided med- meditation. I could have put that concept in or that. And I think we have to let go of our inner perfectionist because perfection is a, is a, is a creativity killer. And I think that just write, just write and just keep writing. And then there might be something <laughs> where you're like, oh, that makes, let me let that, let me let that one go. So I think that um, for me, I've been willing to, you know, I'm pretty prolific in guided meditation. And when I listen back to them, I'm like, oh, I can't believe I said that. And that could be something that was downloaded, you know, um, 200,000 times. And I'm like, oh, it's out there in the ether and it's killing me. But I had, I have to let go of that. I have to, that was my bell. That was my best at in that moment. And I learned from that. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll try to be better. And I think it's the same thing with our writing. Let's get a little more nuanced. Let's, you know, less is more. Let's get a little less wordy. Let's get a little more exciting. Let's, let's spark, um, ideas and thought and, and, and let's push people's boundaries or, you know, let's tell a great story, you know, whatever, wherever you're coming from. I think, and I think that to do that, you have to writing and learning from it. Well, yeah. And I love in what you're saying that, you know, two things stand out to me. The first about how you were already serving others and associating with people like David Simon and Deepak Chopra who were involved in, you know, this effort. And the writing was really a complement or an extension of that. Where I think many people, just in my travels talking to people, many people want to write a book yet it's not an outgrowth of what they're already doing. It's not an expression of some commitment they have or work they're already involved in. It's more of like an aspiration. And so to hear you tell how you got started, that's one of the things that stands out to me was it was, it sounds like it's really natural. It was part of a natural flow because you had already put yourself in places where you were associating with others and, you know, things just kind of unfolded. It's, it's really beautiful. Well, I was, I was teaching and I was studying and teaching, you know, at the time I was the, the Dean of Chopra Center University. So I was training people. I was teaching them. I was certifying them to be meditation teachers. I was teaching every single day. Um, and I was like, there's only, you know, there's only 50 people in the room. There's only 200 people in the room. There's only 500 people in the room. How do I touch 10,000 people with this exact same message that anyone can med- I mean, that was the message of Secrets of Meditation. You can meditate anywhere. You pick a technique, 
anyone can meditate. That, I mean, that that was my that was my premise. But I think it goes back, Brian, to to what you were talking about when when you first you know shared that you that you're leading a meditation group. You know, I think that you know, listen, there's lots of books that people write, and I'm like, I'm going to write this book, and I'm going to make money, or I'm going to get prestige, or I'm going to get success. And the reality is, publishers make money, writers don't. On mm-hmm. you know, from their from their books, unless you are. Stephen King, James Patterson, or something. Yeah, pick you know, pick the pick the best selling. You know, Fifty Shades of Grey. I don't I don't even know who wrote it, but you know that that, massive. So, um, but I think when we come to anything, like I'm going to do this thing to make money. You know, like we're seeing in the whole cryptocurrency world. You know, people are coming up with you know Mm -hmm. cryptocurrency things um, to make money, not to advance something. And I think that makes it much much harder. And I think if we can. If we can live our life from our heart, and I'll, I'll ask this question, and I, you know, I pose this question, and, and go fairly deep into it in Sacred Powers. You know, what holds your stars apart and your universe together? It's that simple. Go deep into that exploration. What holds your stars apart? You know, and what holds your universe together? What matters most to you? What do you care about? What sparks your passion? You know, whatever it is, go there. And if telling a story or if expressing something in a written form or in a video form awesome. you know, uh, makes sense to you, then then share that and and own your impact. You know, we're not all we're we're not. I don't think we're we're, we're not all F. Scott Fitzgerald coming out of the gate. And anyone can write. We all can write. We all can't write well. We all can't write in a compelling way. But I think it's like everything else. When people say to me, what's my purpose in life? And they sit there and they, and they, and they think about it and they think about it. And I go, well, why don't you just like write down the answer to that question? What holds your stars apart in the universe together? And they're like, I can't, I, I can't, I'm stuck. I can't, I can't. And I'm like, just write it. You can always change it. You know, we know that, uh, here's an important component of this, you know, uh, not that I'm into military metaphors, but um, you know, when a laser-guided missile is off course, the entire trajectory, it is correcting itself perhaps hundreds of times per second because it's off, 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 off. Only upon it's hitting the target, the moment it's launched and the moment it hits, it's on target, and every millisecond in between, it's yeah. off. And we have to not view that as like a failure while we're working on something of course you can write write something that's why i say write every single day and look at look at something horrible that you've written and then go like oh that's just pathetic i'm so glad no one's gonna see that and write again the next day you know and maybe work on that same thing or maybe write something new but i think we have to hone our craft and that's and that's the key. And if you find yourself creative in some way that you want to express yourself, whether in music or dance or songs or um, or video, and, and you got a great writing, voice, um, <laughs> great. You know, I write because I I don't necessarily <laughs> yeah. think you know I've got the perfect face for radio, so I figure um, maybe I can write things that will touch people. Yeah, well, so my voice and my words are, are uh, a lot better than um, I, I don't know that you know I'm not George Clooney. No. So, you know, so that inspires me to how can I how can I touch you more deeply, you know, with a word. And sometimes I'll chew on one word for an hour, you know, in the final 
you know, in the, in the final stages, like when I was moving, you know, from 800 pages down to, to 250 pages for sacred powers, you know, they were like, what's a better word? What's a better phrasing? What's, what will convey really more of what I want to say? That's a, I'm, I'm being sloppy here. Let me be more impeccable with my word. Tell me how you keep your, I mean, when you're talking about 800 draft manuscripts and you're writing every day, how do you stay organized? Is there softwares? Do you use Word? Do you use Scrivener? Do you use, you know, something else? Uh, some fine nomenclature? Just how do you manage the content that you produce so that it, you don't feel like you're reinventing the wheel every time and it's actually being shaped into something that's going to get done one day and serve someone? Yeah, I'm the worst person to ask for that. Uh, I wrote Secrets of Meditation on um, legal pads. So, and then transcribed it. That was fun. <laughs> and that was a powerful editing process. It was like, really? I don't want to say that. Um, so that was, I've, I've been a, you know, I'm an Apple person now, but I was a Microsoft person and I just used Word. And now I'm an Apple person and I just use Word. And, um, Everyone tells me that Scribner's a better, you know, everyone has used a, a more um, a effective or efficient process that I know than, than I have. But because I'm writing every single day, I'm really big on folders and really big on um, keeping my folders uh, together in where I am. So I tag my folders and I pay a lot of attention. If you're going to go my route, which is the most... I should say the least efficient of, of all the mechanisms and methodologies um, because I'm not, I don't use a writing software program and, and most of my friends who write do. And um, so I'm a word guy and I use a lot of folders. Okay. Tell, tell me about how and when other people come into the process for you. Do you have people who help you with research? Obviously an editor comes in sometime. Do you have like conceptual editors that you kick, ideas around at a high level at the outset like what what does your team look like from tip to tail of any given project well again i i i think maybe this will encourage people out there you know i'm 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 it i'm i'm the guy um so people ask me all the time do i know a good ghost writer you know like no it's not it's not what i want to do like because again i'm not looking to write a book or publish a book i'm looking to express myself at a very very deep level so if you ever see an article with a with a, with a byline that has my name i actually wrote that um and so that um most everyone i know uses ghostwriters in, in in some way but i don't because i'm not trying to get books out there um i i hope hay house isn't listening to this because I do want to get, if Hay House is listening, <laughs> yes, I do want to get books out there. Every year I want to write another book. Um, but, you know, right now, uh, I know I should be writing another book right now um, as a, but I'm um, just writing, you know, so I haven't put it together yet. I haven't written a proposal. I haven't done any of those things. So um, here's how it works um, in, in, in the real world. You know, you write the table of contents. You have a, um, maybe you have a preface or an intro or maybe just one or two pages that explains really what this is about, where it's going to go and, and, and how that's going to unfold. And uh, then you write that sample chapter. That's like the killer sample chapter. And 
can't have in your mind. Oh, it's not that good, but they'll know there'll be other things. Or maybe you don't get it because you haven't read the chapter before or after. No, that you have to write the greatest chapter you've ever written on anything. And it doesn't have to be 30 pages. It could be a a, a 10-page brilliant sample chapter. And then that's what I, um, it's 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 sort of like a little intro, a table of contents, and a sample chapter. And that's what I have. Um, I even did that with Secrets of Meditation. Even after they were like, hey, what do you got? I was like, well, rather than giving the whole manuscript because I wanted to get the green light fast, I was like, I plucked what I felt was a great chapter out of it with the, mm-hmm. with the table of contents and the setup. And so that's what I do. So I wrote five drafts of Sacred Powers. Um, before I let anyone else see it. So I wrote that that first 800-page version. Then I probably, you know, was, was knocking out about um, maybe like 75 pages every every edit that I did to it. And I'm editing for content. I'm not, I'm, I'm not you know, yes, I will stumble into where I spelled, you know, collective with one L or something like that. Or, But uh, I'm really looking for... Um, flow. I'm looking for, there was a certain point where I was writing Sacred Powers and I said, oh, you know what? The book is brilliant. And on page 60, it takes uh, a dip in intensity from like page 60 to page 70. Like, what am I doing there? Where, because I wanted to keep the reader engaged the full way. And I didn't want to say, oh, we're going to, we're going to slack off here. So then I worked on those 10 pages. Um, I don't know, perhaps for like two weeks, just those 10 pages, ultimately like distilling them down to like a page and a half and then bridged it and then, and then moved on. So I think before you, you know, a lot of people like they write a book. I was just talking to a friend of mine. She's like, she's writing her first book and she's like, "Uh, when should I bring in the editor? And I go, how far are you? And she said, I've written a chapter. I'm like, no, no, you need to write a book before you bring an editor in. Now, I will say that in Destressifying on page 170, I had a story about me teaching uh, Marines uh, the, 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 the technique of 16 seconds in Camp Pendleton. And the editor, once I had submitted it, said, mm. hey, you buried this. You buried this at page 170. This should be page one. And so you open Destressifying and it talks about me and I said, why should that be page one? She said, this explains who you are. You know, it's a fairly self-deprecating story of me being overwhelmed, you know, teaching Marines who are like these magnificent beings who are like, yeah, we just did four tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. What could you possibly have to teach us? And so they said, that is, that's, a, it's interesting. Uh, it's engaging. It lets people know who you are and let it flow. So I would say, you know, write, no, everyone doesn't have to write the 250-page book. You know, what are some of the greatest books that are 100 pages? Um, Seven Spiritual Laws of Success. I think it's 119 no. pages. The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. I think it's 130 pages. You know, the, the book doesn't have to be 270. You know, I believe keep in your mind less is more. And after you've done your second, third, fourth, Fifth, when you think, all right, 
it's perfect. That's when I would bring in an editor. And don't bring in an editor who likes you and don't bring in an editor who's uh, enamored with you because that happens, you know, at a certain point. And they were like, oh, I'm so honored. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't. I want you to I want you to not know who I am and to hate me. <laughs> that's that's actually what I'm looking for in my in an editor. Also, you have some skills. Yeah. So talking about things external to us that can help us get our projects done. Tell me about your experience with deadlines. You know, I myself have struggled to self-impose a deadline and, you know, adhere to it and get something done. And I feel a different sense of urgency. And I see that I often deliver if it's an external thing. Um, What's your experience like with deadlines, both internal and external? And what advice do you have for others about that? Well, Secrets of Meditation and Destressifying, I had the same editor. And that editor um, at, at Hay House and that editor... Uh, you know, she was brilliant. And uh, she also had great confidence in my ability to deliver a manuscript at a certain point in time. So she said, deliver this to me six months before pub date. So it was always like a work back schedule. So we were like, well, the publication date is going to be Secrets of Meditation was September 4th, 2012. Um, and Destressifying was like August 27th, you know, 2015. And Sacred Powers was 12-12-2017. I mean, it was, those, those dates were really clear. And so she was like, here's the pub date. We need six months to do the final, final, final edits and printing. So give it to me a month before that, and we'll go back and forth a little bit. Uh, Sacred Powers, you know, uh, I had a brand new editor. She was great. And um, out of New York. So I wasn't meeting with her. I never met with her face to face over the book. We were just back and forth a lot. And she did. Did she hate you? (laughs) And uh, she's like such a sweet soul. She didn't. Um, But every email I ever sent to her was like, be hard on me. Please be hard on me. You know, I can take it. (laughs) And, And I stress that. I mean, I probably put that in over 25 emails to her in the back and forth. So she said, can you get me that, um, that book on January 1st? And I said, for 12-12, I said, you don't have any confidence in me. And she said, no, 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 I do. But we've never worked together. And so we could go back and forth 20 times. And guess what? We did. So much so that Sacred Powers was mm-hmm. originally supposed to be the power of your ripple. And then it took on a life of its own. And I said, you know, there are actually more powers than the power of your, of, of your ripple. And so she really, um, she held my feet to the fire on that, on that date. And I blew it. I blew the deadline. And uh, I said, can we still get a 12-12? Cause I didn't want to come out January 1st of 2018. I wanted to be like right before Christmas. And she was like, mm, I can give you 10 days. And in those, and that's why in those 10 days, I, that was it. I didn't do anything else. I skipped meals. I skipped conversations. I didn't talk to anyone. Uh, I didn't reply to an email for for two weeks. You know, I was I was totally zoned in. And I think meditating helps you with your with your deadlines. We would think, oh wait, if you're yeah, sitting and wasting a half hour meditating, how can you know you've just eaten up a half hour? It makes you more efficient. It, it, it brings clarity. But I think always do your work back schedule, even if you don't have a pub date. You know, say, when would I want this book to come out? You know, and, you know, let's say uh, like right now, let's say you want a book to come out um, 
July 1st of next year. So you would probably need to get that book to whatever publisher mm-hmm. by, say, September, October, November 1st, somewhere in, in that, to have the longest lead time, which means you need to be done with yeah. your fifth draft that you hand over to an yeah. editor to tell. So having, having targets working backwards. You know, on, on that September, October, November date. And so I wouldn't bring in other, I wouldn't, you know, it, I think it's great to sit down and say, I'm thinking about this thing. I'm really, you know, I don't think I've heard it. Listen to that podcast by the guys from uh, the glasses uh, company. uh, Parker Warby, Warby Parker. Hey, um, you've heard of that, that sunglass company. Yeah. So they were like, they were trying to like, you know, blow up the um, the stranglehold that Luxottica had on the market with like a high-end but affordable glasses. And three guys from Wharton, and they were just sitting trying to figure out how could they do this thing. And they went over 2,000 names for the company. And they just kept writing them down every single day, writing down names for the company, writing down names for the company, you know, and using them on other people, asking other people about them, uh, bouncing bouncing ideas off. And ultimately they came up with this name, which sounds like something, and it's actually two characters from two totally separate books or something like that, merged together. And you think, oh, it's these two high-minded, you know, high-end sunglass guys. Anyway, I, I think that it's really healthy if you have someone to bounce these ideas off of. So my general manager, um, I said to her, I'm thinking about this book. And she said to me, okay, so what is it? So I showed her the table of contents. Now, of course, she loves me, so not the best um, person. Um, but she was yeah. like, I was like, make believe you're seeing this and you don't even know who the person is. So she was like, well, what about that? Or what about that? So I think that's important to have someone like that in your life in general to help you with, with all sorts of stuff, especially with writing, though. So, um, she, uh, you know, she helped me think about new concepts, but I like to keep my stuff really, really inside of me and, and allow no. it to keep percolating no. on until it's, it's not a control thing. It's just, I don't think it's really, uh, I don't think it'll help in the process it, too early in the process. So we have to all understand what's our creative process. You know, yeah. where is it like, all right, I'm done. Now let me bring in someone else who that. has another idea versus because if you've got, a, you know, if you've got a song in your heart, you don't need to keep, keep saying to people, do you like it? You got to write that song. If no one ever listens to it, you got to write that song. And so same thing with writing that book. Okay. I, lo- I love that. I've got just about three more questions. Um, are you good on time if, if we cover that? I have I have uh, another forty five minutes till my next gig. So, okay, we we won't go that long. I don't, I don't think, <laughs> but I guess it's up to you because you get to answer. So, uh, the next one I think is my last book related question, and then I just want to come back to a general question. So, uh, before we leave the topic of writing and publishing, um, I just want to ask about something I heard you say when we were together in Seattle, which was. And, and what we didn't talk about in this conversation right now, I want to acknowledge is that that book, The Secrets of Meditation, won the Nautilus Award, which is pretty awesome. Congratulations on that. And uh, I remember hearing you say that the profits or your maybe your royalties or some some portion of that book went to charity. 
So even though it sold really, really well, you personally weren't enriched. You did a lot of good for a lot of people, not just because you wrote it, but also because the financial uh, aspect went somewhere else. And I, I'm interested to know where that came in, the process that you decided that that would be something you did with that book. And if that's something you would recommend to others, that they have a charitable component of their projects and maybe attach it to something bigger than themselves in that way also. What's your advice to writers about charitable aspects of projects? Well, again, you know, some people do that because they think it'll uh, generate more sales or it'll be perceived in a certain way. Um, and it was 100% of all my proceeds that that from Secrets of Meditation, um, you know, were donated to a whole bunch of different organizations. But I wanted to feel that this was genuinely a gift to the person who had never meditated before or had struggled with their meditation practice. I wanted to feel like this was purely, you know what, this is, I want to give you a gift. Now, if you're giving a gift to someone, you don't give them a gift and go, well, you know, it cost me approximately yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 25 bucks. So what do you got? Uh, so, uh, so for me, you know, since I viewed the writing of that as a gift, I felt, and obviously I can't control what my publisher does. Um, and I didn't, I didn't ask them to do anything. You know, the, they gave me the gift of, of, you know, it, it was one of those things where I was gifted so much generosity, um, in the writing of that book and the creation and the publishing of that book that, um, it felt better to let me just pass through and I didn't know it. That book did has done spectacularly, and even you know that. Uh, then I wrote the revised Secrets of Meditation, and and that book has done really well. And I I, I never had any expectation other than well, I need to share this to more than the five hundred people who are in the room on a on a regular basis. So, um, so that just felt right. That just felt really really comfortable. Now, of course. Um, I didn't put it prominently enough, so I, you know, I've, I'm, I'm thinking maybe yeah. 15% of the people who even read that book even saw that it was on the inside, you know, on that on the inside cover, that all proceeds go, because I think most people don't read that page. Um, just like uh, my first CD I created out of, <laughs> <laughs> out of all sustainable materials. Um, but didn't mention it to anyone, all recycled and recyclable. So it's like I spent like an extra dollar a CD and I was like, oh, I forgot to put it on the CD that this is. So I'm not really good at virtue signaling. Um, I probably should get better at it since that's like the name of the game. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, I think yeah. of something – if you have a passion project, what better way to fund it? I still got to choose who, where I wanted to fund. So I got to fund, um, you know, uh, women's breast cancer research. And I got to fund um, uh, various military uh, veterans organizations, uh, Wounded Warrior. And I got to fund, you know, some really great um, dog rescue uh, operations. And then people would say to me, you know, I'm running in the Dana-Farber race in St. Louis. Can you fund me? And I was like, sure, here's 500 bucks. And, 
and someone, you know, someone was running in this and someone was running in that and someone was doing something. And I felt you know, like these are people who I admire or are friends of mine and they're doing something. Yeah. So that was my way of stepping up. So a lot of that money went to other people's GoFundMe's that were supporting other charities. It was all charity, you know, it was a charity mm-hmm. that, that spoke to me. Um, and see, that's a lot, you know, a lot of people say, you know, you should teach in the prisons. Well, I, I taught in the prisons. I guess that's not my thing. You know, what I do is I work for this organization, with this organization, I'm on the advisory board, Blue Courage, and, you know, works with the Department of Justice and law enforcement. And they work now, you know, with um, people who, you know, um, people who are in the world of corrections. And so, like, I, that's how I serve that. I train people who are guards and in, in correctional facilities to be more mindful and to um, to use some of these tools wow. and techniques in the work that they do. So it's not always like you have to go there and do that thing. When people say you should teach kids, well, I taught kids for like a year. It's not my thing. I, I, I so what do I do in my teacher training? I teach people who want to teach kids. Yeah. And so that's what I think we always need to do. That's what I mean by the by the sacred power of your ripple. I think we have an opportunity to not just not everyone has to march on Washington for a thing. Some people can fund it. Some people can raise the vibration. I didn't go to to Washington for the most recent thing, but a friend of mine yeah. who helped, you know, fund a bunch of, you know, high school kids from his school, you know, I had him on my radio show. So we don't have to you know, there's, we don't have to do the traditional the, or the conventional ways of putting money yeah. towards causes. We can find the things that really speak to us and then do the thing from our native energies, from our most inherent skill sets. And uh, that's a, an important question. You know, how can I help others? How can I heal others? How can I serve others? Um, it sounds very, very selfless. But how can I do that using what fulfills me? Using my gifts, my talents, my innate energies. Um, yeah, such a such a great question, and part of what allows it to be not only enjoyable but sustainable. Right. And I think anybody who knows you can see that that is authentic to you. I mean, I, I did your sutra, uh, heart sutra meditation this morning. You know, and on your website, how many meditations you make available at no cost? And like you said, in Sacred Powers, the bonus people can click right from their Kindle and go to the site. It's I think it's really cool, and it, that authenticity and that generosity comes through in, in the work you do. So I, for one, want to thank you. Right. So, so, so I think we can be selfish with what yeah. fulfills us. Yeah. You know, we can say, like, well, this really fulfills me. How can I, I help heal and serve others Yeah. With, with that thing that's fulfilling me? And then it, it, there's really a win-win. So that's how you know when – when it's like suddenly it's like, well, it's not really fulfilling. Okay, time out. Yeah, I have to do correct. something else because we all yeah. have stuff that we love, yeah. you know? So do that. Figure yeah. out ways to do that and serve everybody. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so switching back to the conversation about just meditation generally, um, I'd love to get your perspective if, uh, if you have for, so people who mindfulness into their organization, but they're maybe not, in a position of authority, you know, they're not the boss who can just say, Hey guys, Monday morning, get in the conference room. We're all going to do this, you know, thing. Uh, what, what do you say to people who are trying to lead up and introduce a more mindful or aware, compassionate, you know, practice in their organization? Yeah. Um, well, obviously there's, there's lots of ways that we can do this. You know, I've, 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 
I've trained a lot of um, corporate CEOs. One of my greatest joys was um, uh, I, I did some work with Bank America, Merrill Lynch, and John Thiel, who at the time was the CEO of Merrill Lynch, took a fairly, I would say it was an unpopular position of, uh, of bringing me in to that organization to to teach at a lot of their conferences and you know i just thought 16 seconds and watching your breath you know for a couple of minutes and, and everybody meditated and you know some people felt it was okay some people was not and really i just taught it as a as a tool for mindful performance and so of course you know once the ceo yeah. says it's okay it, you know there's still going to be detractors in that you know many detractors but it's becoming a little more mainstream, a little more acceptable. Leading up is a very, very important thing. And I think all you need is one friend or one colleague or one coworker mm. who's willing to suddenly um, do it with you. And that is like, oh, um, hey, how about at 10 o'clock we meditate from 10 to 10.10? And we do it in, a, in, a, in, in a, some conference room so that we're not on display, but over time people become aware, oh, there's this thing. Or how about if you're just starting a meeting, everybody starts with a minute of just um, watching your breath, slowing down. We know the value of starting a meeting if you're coming from that place, as I talked before, Yoga Stakuru Karmani, if we establish ourselves in the present moment and then perform action, we'll sink the free throw, we'll, we'll score the penalty kick, we'll also have a less... Um, amped up conversation if we're having challenging or difficult conversations or brainstorming sessions. We'll have a more creative scenario. So if you can, if you're in a position to lead a meeting, let's, you can say, and it, at the first time it's going to be really kooky, but I've got people, I've got, I've got students and, and certified teachers who I say, do this at your Thanksgiving dinner, at your Christmas dinner, at your holiday dinner, whatever that is, you know, start with just everyone just close their eyes and just for one minute, just drift your attention to people or things that you're grateful for. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be so cooped out and weird. And so even starting with 16 seconds of just watching your breath, uh, starting with a minute, five minutes, 10 minutes. But if you can get some colleague in the workplace, the second it sort of gets out like, oh, Brian and kooky Fran are meditating in that thing. Someone's going to go, oh, really? And they do that? Yeah. I'll join that. And then suddenly, yeah. you know, it's it's secular. You're not trying to convince anyone. It's everybody says, let's just go inside and watch our breath for 10 minutes. Let's just watch it flow in. Let's watch it flow out. And so once you can start to do that, or, you know, or use one of the, you know, one of the hundreds of techniques that I have in Sacred Powers or Secrets of Meditation, or listen to one of the guided meditations, you know, yeah. like, like you mentioned, that's awesome. um, I've got over 200 free guided meditations. Uh, I'm also on like insight timer. That's free. It's a lot of different Spotify. It's a lot of different places where you can do that. But I think you need a friend because if you're just the cooked out person, you know, <laughs> and even if you say to your friend, listen, yeah. just sit here with me for, for five minutes yeah. or for 10 minutes, just do it with me for like two weeks. You know, if you're really a friend, you'll sit and stare at me for 10 minutes with my eyes closed while I'm in. And that's it, it. Will catch on because, you know, people are going to go. So what are you? What are you getting out of it? I'm like we're a little calmer. We're a little more creative. We're a little more relaxed. We're less stressed out. We're not bringing the crap that we that we 
had an argument that we had. We're not bringing some emotional turbulence into this next meeting. That's awesome. I, I want all my colleagues to meditate for that reason, right? Now, the, the benefits I get, notwithstanding, I, I, I wish others would do that. So, well, I, I want to end, if you're willing, um, in just a moment, but I want to share something with you before that. I want to end with the 16-second meditation, if, if you'd be willing, in, in, just, in just a moment. Before we get to that, yeah. um, did you get down to the single uh, epitaph of what will be on your tombstone? Did you? I don't. I don't think I've read that. Did you? Did you arrive at that? Okay, maybe it's like Gandhi, where he says, "My life is my message." Right? No. And and i think it's because you know i don't believe you know a lot of the ancient wisdom traditions say you are here for a purpose brian you are here for a purpose and i believe that this snapshot of the moment we are here for a purpose i call that dri d h r i dri um it's an ancient word it's the root of dharma and it originally meant that which upholds but i believe we have all these mini dri arcs in our life and there's a snapshot of the moment and maybe where you were and where you're going, you know, and they all, you know, are overlapping each other. And so I don't think you or I are here for one divine reason in this life. But I think right now we're here for a very, very specific cause, meaning, purpose. And and I think that who knows 10 years from now, two years from now, yeah. 20 years yeah. from now, you know. Um, if that's even possible, you know, 50 years from now, who knows? And so, um, I don't ever want to cap it until it's capped by somebody else. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Well, I do want, I do want to thank you. And one of the ways that I've attempted to express my gratitude is, uh, before our conversation here, I went on to Kiva.org, the micro lending site that helps with entrepreneurs around the world. And I made uh, a little $25 loan to an entrepreneur named Rita in Armenia that's gonna help her purchase a computer and also some of her school texts so she can develop and enlarge her professional skills. So I, I did that on your behalf and, and, and that's a way I just wanna say thank you. If, so before we do the, the 16 second meditation or whatever you, you wanna lead, lead us through for just, just a moment or two, um, if people want to learn more about you, if they want to connect with you, what should they do? Uh, you can just go to davidg.com. Um, there's the tons of free stuff there. And there's even more and deeper uh, tools, techniques, tips uh, for weaving this into your life. Uh, if you join the David G. Sweet Spot community, which is free. Uh, I don't share my data with anybody ever under any circumstances. Obviously, if the feds come, I'm giving you up. But, um, you know, whatever. Honestly, you know, you can always unsubscribe if you don't like. Um, that unlocks a whole, uh, you know, tsunami of powerful tools. Um, I'm updating probably three to five new um, research studies uh, on my site. I travel around all over the place, so I'd love to see you, you know, show up in um, some places for an hour, other places for a week. And uh, so, yeah, people can keep you can find me there. And obviously anywhere where books are sold, anywhere where music is, is streamed or sold. Um, 
I'm just hoping that we can connect because as I said, I believe we transform the world by transforming ourselves. We don't need to look any further than our own heart for massive global transformation. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Well, let's let's wrap with um, some kind of a lead us through something and the listeners who want can uh, follow along. Yeah, well, this is really, you know, let's let's use the easiest one, because, you know, when I first taught this to Marines and Camp Pendleton, it was 16 seconds. And then every day, uh, every week, rather, we added one minute. So we meditated for 16 seconds on Monday. Tuesday, Wednesday, straight through the week. The next week we added a minute. It was a minute 16. The next week we added another minute, two minutes and 16. And I believe that when we incrementally just add just a little more time, it's painless. It's painless. So I like to start this meditation off by asking you to think about something that might have been bothering you or disturbing you, because this will also teach you the power of the pattern interrupt. So don't go too deep. This isn't therapy, but something that may have just someone said they were going to do something. They didn't. Something you thought was going to happen. It didn't. Or something wasn't supposed to happen and it did. Just get clear on that thing. And again, just an irritation, a disturbance, a discomfort. And now close your eyes and through your nose, take a long, slow, deep breath in and watch that breath as it goes down deep into your belly. And when it gets there, hold it and watch it and witness it. And now release it. Watch it move up your chest. Observe it the whole way as it comes out of your nostrils. Hold that breath out. Continue to exhale. Keep witnessing it as it goes out. And now breathe normally and open your eyes. And that was 16 seconds. And in those 16 seconds, if you were playing along with me, and uh, I, you know, maybe you thought I was gonna trick you into the cult, but that was just 16 seconds. You were not in the past, you were not in the future. In those 16 seconds, you were fully present. In those 16 seconds, if you were playing along, you probably weren't thinking about that thing that I just asked you to think about, that irritation or that disturbance. And that's because you can't be in the present moment and be in the past and the future simultaneously. In the present moment, there is no grievance. There is no fear. There's no irritation. In the present moment, there's only this connection to the now. And that's a beautiful thing. And that was a pattern interrupt. Now, maybe in the 17th second, you're pissed again or irritated again. But for those 16 seconds, you weren't. And the beauty is, I didn't tell you, okay, now stop thinking about that disturbance or stop thinking about that irritation. All I said was close your eyes and watch your breath. So now we know if if we have 60,000 to 80,000 thoughts a day, a thought every 1.2 seconds, all we have to do is connect to the present moment for 16 seconds. And the thoughts don't stop. Our attention just isn't there. It's fully on the present moment, on the here and now. And that's where we get to ask that question. Here I am in this sacred, precious, present moment. What am I going to do with it? And if we can just ask ourselves that question at the end of every 16-second experience, then our best version will show up. At least there's a higher likelihood of our best version showing up. I love that. So great. It's so great to be with you. Thank you, my friend. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, this is great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for inviting me.